This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 20th of October 2021 at home in Wicklow and it is largely concerned with the idea of conflict, both interpersonal conflict and international conflict. And I take as my two case studies the Northern Ireland peace uh, peace process and also the South African Truth and Reconciliation uh, report, both from the late 90s. Um, so there's that. Uh, I talk about the necessity for truth and honesty. I discuss forgiveness and contrition and I talk about anger and anger as the fuel for conflict. I managed to reference a few movies as usual. So you've got Pixar's Finding Nemo and Up. They are referenced uh, in relation to some more domestic concerns of mine. And I also refer to Troy, uh, the Wolfgang Peterson movie, in relation to anger. And I discuss briefly at the end of the episode Alfred Hitchcock's foreign correspondent in relation to the absence of conflict <laughs> so there you go that's what's coming up it's um I think it's a pretty good episode actually and I just let it flow in spite of in spite of being afflicted with a cold oh I'm such a good lad okay there you go I hope you enjoy it I'll talk to you real soon Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. Welcome to it. How are you today? How's life with you in this very moment? Take a pause, take a beat. Just uh, just check in with yourself there. Just give yourself a little read, a little scan, a little a little uh, utilization of the emotional and psychological barometer. Where's the mercury heading? Actually, that's bad, isn't it? There's, there's no mercury. Is there mercury in a barometer? Is there mercury in all those measuring instruments? I don't know. Sorry to distract you from your scan there. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what we've got to do. You've got to do it every now and again. I recommend it regularly if you're if you're if you're not tuned in to yourself um it's necessary to take a pause and just go how am i how am i today how am i in this moment and that's useful information because it helps you calibrate it helps you orientate and it helps you proceed with more information that can help you in your future decision making even if that's only the afternoon that faces you or the day that faces you or the evening that faces you doesn't matter it's okay you're allowed you're allowed to check in on yourself okay why don't you institute that right now you have permission to check in on yourself to ask yourself how am i <laughs> to have a little schizophrenic conversation okay Okay, great. Now, it was only last week that I was saying you might detect a tone in my voice. My voice. 
vulva. <laughs> um, I read an article on vulvas the other day because my, my quest, my quest for knowledge, my thirst for knowledge never ends. It's never sated. There was an article on naming the parts of female genitalia and how some survey, some recent survey of, I don't know, a thousand uh, respondents concluded that most people can't successfully name the seven discrete parts of the female genital anatomy. Uh, so there was an article on vulvas to kind of spell it all out. So there you go. I didn't think I was going to go there, <laughs> but there I went, but I'm back. Um, yes, I was talking about how last week I said you might detect a tone in my voice, a tone of sickness, because all last week, all last week from more or less Sunday right through to Friday, I was battling, battling a dose and it kind of got a hold of me, but um, I, I persevered and I emerged triumphant at the weekend for my daughter's birthday and we had a great weekend. But then late on Sunday night, it struck again, a new thing. And it was really quite vicious. It kind of got me in the throat and it felt like I was swallowing rocks. So very uncomfortable. And it didn't really escalate until I woke up yesterday morning feeling wretched. I was up very early, uh, about half five. And I thought, I'm going to take myself out and do my morning routine. I had to check a bit of stuff online first. Um, I quickly uh, I quickly put out a pod poem that my my friend Daniel, my good friend Daniel Correa, I'm, I'm probably going to pronounce his name wrong, but a former student of mine, a, Col- a great Colombian guy who is still in Australia, has been helping me with the, the look, the look of love. No, with the look of of the clear out with the look of the podcast with the sort of broad branding um and labeling and marketing of the podcast which has been absolutely fantastic what a what a great guy i always knew he was a lovely guy but um, when he reached out to me and said i'd like to help you promote your podcast i was like hey thanks man so i bumped daniel off a pod poem so i could just put the clear out stamp on it and i had to take myself back to bed and I didn't resurface. I, I think I woke up again at about 11 a.m., which I can't remember waking up as late as that in recent years. Um, so really very unusual. My, my daughter came in at some point to say goodbye to me as she was heading off to school. Um, my wife dropped off a cup of tea, and yeah, the house was the house was quiet when I woke up. So. Normally, I would have been recording yesterday, but I was absolutely battered by whatever it was. And it's, it's lingering. It's lingering today, but I can, I, can feel my, I can feel myself on the mend. So, it's okay. Stay the hand. You don't have to write postcards of concern. You don't have to text, pick up the phone. You don't have to start a movement. How's Dara? Is he all right? No, I'm grand. Thanks very much. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm dealing with. I'll tell you what I'm dealing with here in the in the lovely abode that is hashtag blessed. As you know, the uh, the support crew for the podcast consists of the various animals in hashtag blessed, 
and there are some funny dynamics that go on with these animals so i'm just going to give you a quick a quick update so the eating habits of the marketing department which consists of ruby the recently acquired kitten and marlin the the beleaguered ailing aged cat uh marlin is 19 years old um that's the that's the marketing department and marlin does not want to be friends with ruby ruby's quite keen on being friends with marlin and it's a very antagonistic relationship so there's there's conflict um and that is going to be a theme of today's episode conflict which i'll uh, i'll look at quite um quite seriously in due course but um yeah there's there's conflict between the two cats so we have to sort of keep them separated a lot of the time and it's just really interesting to uh, to observe their modes of behavior their modes of movement and the speed with which they eat food so ruby the kitten is fundamentally a furry eating machine she devours anything she can get her little gob on and consumes vast quantities of cat food both wet and dry and when she gets a chance to break in to the the common living area where marlin generally resides she makes a beeline for marlin's dish to see what's left in that and polishes that off if no one catches her in time so she's this dynamo uh, with a voracious appetite and just determined to stuff her gut at every chance so that's that's her mode and it's it's speed it's like puppyish eating it's the it's the it's the dog gobble snaffle the wolf and then marlin sleeps more because she's ancient and presents herself for feeding and i'll dole out a smaller amount of wet food because she can't quite handle a full dish so a little while ago i'd say about an hour ago less she was she emerged from under her little tent which is uh, a blanket stretched over the couch and she goes in there for a bit of peace and quiet so she emerged from that decided she was quite hungry i put a bit of wet food in her dish and there she was eating away at her pace very slow it's a very genteel a very genteel nibble 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 swallow swallow and that was fine and i was going ah that's nice feeding my cat and then the next thing she hiked up the whole thing in a huge glom of undigested wet cat food wrapped in the the generous ooze of her stomach and it was gross and of course she chose to deposit this gift on on the rug because tiles which would be so easy to wipe up tiles aren't good enough you know the cat's like bring me the rug i wish to puke and so there she was puking it up this disgusting heap of slimy cat food so i quickly deposited marlin out into the garden um so i could clean up and so she could eat some grass to help her with her digestion so that was fine and then i went to the window to look to see how she was getting on and the three chickens are basically 
you know, glued to her, kind of going, what are you doing in our garden, man? This is our domain. You don't have a beak. You don't have a comb on your head. You don't have feathers. Get the hell out of our turf. And Marlon's just like ignoring them with this kind of irritated disdain. But then having to occasionally turn really fast and have a swipe just to get them to back off. So I watched this dynamic, you know, play itself out. She, Marlon hopped up onto the bench. Next thing, the three chickens are hopping up onto the bench beside her. And she's just, you know, goes for a quick swipe. The rooster flies off. The other two just stare at her. And then Marlon is just like, oh, here, F this. And just kind of jumps off the bench and proceeds grumpily to kind of come back to the door to be let in. And then takes herself back in under the under the cover of her tent. So, um, yeah. And then Ruby, on the other hand, Ruby is choosing to snooze in the hot press um, over the immersion with the towels. Um, but not before leaving a ghastly uh, load in the kitty litter. So I drift down that end of the house and I'm basically reaching for my World War One trench gas mask and cleaning that up. Um, and then Ruby's looking for more food. And here's a good one. Picture this, if you will, if you dare. Picture a middle-aged man sitting on the throne. And by the throne, I mean the toilette. Early in the morning, while a kitten nearby scoffles down uh, a large amount of wet cat food and then comes purring in gratitude. Well, either in gratitude or in an attempt to seduce more cat food out of the sleepy figure sitting on the loo uh, whose tracksuit bottoms are nestled around his ankles. So Ruby does her bit of purring and then goes, oh, this looks like a nice place to, to just settle down and jumps into the dropped tracksuit bottoms between my legs. Because yes, I am that middle-aged man. That's that's what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with stinking, shitting, puking, <laughs> uh, gobbling, gurbling cats. It's um, It's lovely. I can't get enough of it and angry, aggressive, territorial chickens. Speaking of which, if you recall the movie Finding Nemo, uh, the Pixar movie, you might recall that the the fish, or fish life, sea life, that lived in the aquarium in the dentist's office in Sydney, where Nemo ends up, there, there was one scene in the movie where the, the fish are commenting on the dental procedure that is being undergone in front of them and it's quite funny because they have a great level of expertise for have from having observed the dentist for so long i was thinking of them today because edwina the rooster has taken the habit of jumping up on the outside kitchen windowsill in the morning uh to sort of inspect goings on in that sort of self-important alpha male rooster way like uh, I'm overseeing everything, so when I'm not trying to um, force myself on the the two female chickens, I'm gonna throw an eye on proceedings in the house to make sure the Homo sapiens aren't doing anything irregular. 
So uh, Edwina was there the other day looking at me making um, making batter, like staring in the window with a sort of an energy that suggested that he was totally unimpressed. A bit of a kind of a batter, yeah. Are you making making pancakes? And um, are you using eggs? Is that it? Are you using our eggs? My eggs? And I'm like, hey man, just, just take it easy. Those eggs weren't viable. What do you mean they weren't viable? I mean, you know, there was no chickens coming out of those eggs. They were kind of fit for eating. What? Are you saying that I'm I'm not fertile? That I'm not capable of producing, you know, a baby chicken? Look, I'm not saying anything because I don't really know what goes on. All I'm saying is those eggs didn't have chickens in them. Oh, yeah, nice, yeah. And they're just going to make pancakes. It's all good. You can just eat them anyway. Yeah, is that how it goes? Edwina, get out of my face. I'm just trying to make pancakes and have breakfast. All right, you, yeah, you do you. What? You heard me, man. You do you. You know what I mean. Okay, Edwina, um, take it easy now. So um, that's what's happening. I've got this uh, this uh, supervising rooster who um, who was there again, who was there again this morning looking at my coffee-making technique. Just that little twitchy twitch of the head, the slightly sideways eye that a, a chicken will give you as I did the ratchet in the machine and made my froth. I was like, is that okay? Yeah, yeah, not bad, not bad. You just drink your coffee there, pancake boy. Okay? All right, Edwina, thanks. So there you go. That's what's going on. That's nice, isn't it? That was a nice little miscellany of animal antics from hashtag blessed. That's what I've been dealing with here. Beautiful. Now, do you know what it is? This this bloody thing I got. I've I've been teaching a bit of karate in my daughter's school, and I was in there two weeks ago, and this child came up to me, who I think is in senior infants, maybe. So I don't know, five years old, six years old, and he was just leering up at me with two nostrils engorged with snot that particularly concerning disturbing shade of very icky green mucusy snot and he was just looking at me and he said with evident delight i have a really bad cold and through my mask i was like well stay there stay away from me then just keep it well away from me but uh, I might, I might actually be holding that grinning midget responsible for my current affliction, although it could just as easily have been my daughter, um, who was who was sick as well. But there you go. That's that's another thing I was dealing with these uh, these wonderful children in my daughter's school. Great kids, I have to say. I mean, no messing. It's, it's an extraordinary thing to try and teach karate to a room full of five-year-olds. They are all, I, I mean, it, it's, like, it's like a room full of maggots on amphetamines who also have this characteristic of the dog in Up. If you remember Doug the dog in Pixar's Up, so that's the second animated movie I'm referencing today, that dog is absolutely benign and lovely and adorable and i'm going to apply that to those kids in my daughter's school 
but he also is unable to stop himself being utterly transfixed by the possibility of a nearby squirrel. So Doug, if you recall, will be like, Hello, my name is Doug and I am a dog and I am really... Squirrel! I am really happy to see you. I hope that we can be friends. Squirrel! And that's what he does. And that's what it's like teaching uh, 15 to 16 five-year-olds karate. Every three seconds they're completely absorbed and transfixed and distracted by something else totally incidental. Um, But that's okay. That's okay. That's what I signed up for. And with that, I'll leave leave those anecdotes behind. So, yeah, I want to... um, I want to talk about I want to talk about conflict today. Uh, I'm really interested in how we move beyond conflict and what is necessary to I I don't know if I want to use the transcend uh, word, but to I suppose yeah to, to, to leave conflict behind what are the components of conflict that need to be overcome what are the elements that need to be present for the resolution of conflict and um how does anger which is a hugely fueling uh, component of conflict how does anger get set aside how does anger get put to bed and how does desire for retribution how does desire for revenge get retired um and i'm interested in this i suppose primarily on an interpersonal level because it's my belief that unresolved conflicts in your interpersonal relationships can be absolutely destructive and energy sapping, debilitating, uh, stress inducing, anxiety inducing, and a source of internal strife and a source of ongoing unease and I I find myself always very committed to resolving conflict uh, if at all possible but sometimes it isn't possible and then that's a real quandary because where where do you find where do you find peace where do you find peace beyond that and where where does that that unresolution reside so you can move forward lighter or with a semblance of acceptance and what is the new mode of behavior with that person or what are the new terms of engagement with that person if the conflict has not been satisfactorily resolved for for both parties um, so that's my primary area of interest, but in my, in my attempt to kind of to research this and in my attempt to broaden the conversation, I decided to look at 
to conflicts, to you know, international conflicts um, from relatively recent history. And I was thinking of uh, South Africa and the apartheid regime and the ascendancy of Nelson Mandela, the establishment of the Rainbow Nation and the ANC taking power um, in South Africa in the in the 90s and then the truth and reconciliation hearings that they had in an attempt to to process the the grief in an attempt to process the anger in an attempt to to explore blame to explore anger to explore uh, the experiences of South African people on both sides of the the conflict of both sides of the the um, the, the the violence uh, that that was a factor of the the police state really that um, the apartheid regime was um, and I also. I, I also looked at the Northern Ireland uh, peace process and the the sort of peace and reconciliation process, as it was known. Um, and that came about after the you know the period of the Troubles, you know, which was essentially typically described as like twenty five years of conflict. Um, the the Good Friday Agreement, I think, was that. I'm trying to think. The Truth and Reconciliation Report from South Africa was 1998, and I'm just asking myself: Was the Belfast the Good Friday Agreement, which subsequently became known as the Belfast Agreement, was that also 1998? I can't remember. Anyway, um, I yeah, I was just looking. I was looking at an academic paper uh, that was published in 2012. Uh, that treated of the the state of the sort of the, the history and genesis of the reconciliation um, process, the reconciliation negotiation struggle um, in Northern Ireland, and at that at the time of writing in two thousand and twelve, the author was arguing that it was really in a very fractious and fundamentally unresolved state. And he explored the, the the kind of minutiae of sectarianism and um, the inability to set aside old agendas, the the culture of distrust and the striving of governments and individual politicians to try to accommodate and move past that very 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 tricky terrain but really interesting to 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 read about it um and refresh my own memory of of certain incidents uh, from the troubles uh but anyway i'll i'll get back to that a little bit later so where do you start like where do you start with with conflict i i was reading um, I was reading A.C. Grayling. I don't know if you're familiar with A.C. Grayling. He is a Rhodesian-born uh, philosopher and thinker who has written many works of 
philosophy. I think he's described him, he describes himself as a, an atheist or a non-theist and a humanist. Um, and he did a, he's done he's done a lot. A lot of his writing has been um, in the service of popularizing and demystifying uh, philosophy. That's how, that's how I would understand it. And he has a series of books which are fundamentally about philosophy for life, philosophy as something that's instantly accessible, where he published bite-sized articles which had previously been published in uh, papers like I think The Observer or The Guardian, um, other publications as well, where he'd take just general topics, you know, love, marriage, uh, war, um, whatever, you know, broadly uh, topics pertaining to human life, personal life, political life, public life, and he'd produce a short essay um, where he would drop in philosophical references uh, going back to ancient Greek philosophy, um, but a lot of contemporary philosophy as well, and really you know, produce very accessible pieces um, for people who, 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 you know, who, who were coming across these ideas and thinkings for the first time. In any case, I was dipping into one of those compendiums of his. He has a book called The Reason of Things. The subtitle is Living with Philosophy, and this is by A.C. Grayling. And I was curious to hear what he had to say about anger. Um, and he has, I'm going to read from it here directly, because he, he cites the, the, the conflict in the Middle East. And what he says is, anger is the chief emotion driving the deadly reciprocity of reprisal and revenge which has engulfed the recent history of the Middle East. The other dominating emotions of that tragedy, grief and terror, would bring the violence to an end without it. So that's interesting. He's arguing that grief and terror would bring the violence to an end if anger wasn't still present. But anger, he says, bitter and implacable when the only response it gets is anger returned feeds on its reflection until it becomes insanity. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So that's that's really laying out the kind of the self-harming aspect of anger. Um, he continues, he, he cites Aretino. I don't even know who Aretino is, but he cites Aretino who wrote, angry men are blind and foolish for reason at such times takes flight and in her absence, Anger plunders all the riches of the intellect. So again, the argument is anger eradicates reason. It eradicates the cool water of reason and allows emotion to drive one's actions. And I must say, this is something I've tried over the years. Um, and certainly in my marriage, if I find I'm kind of having... <laughs> I'm having angry thoughts towards my wife <laughs> or angry impulses. I think, hold on, that's just, that is my advice to myself, by the way. I'm, I'm just saying, I tell myself to go, just sit on it. Don't speak now when you're angry because you might say something you regret and you might just come out with something that's hurtful or unfair um, and fundamentally unhelpful. And it won't, it'll actually take me further from 
what my my goal is uh, rather than I don't know I mean it, the idea that the idea that like being angry or expressing your anger with someone in an uncontrolled way is going to get you a happy result um, in terms of their behavior changing it's just so highly unlikely now it might get a happy result in terms of you purge your anger or you vent it and you get to feel the the satisfaction of now now look what i did now now you know but that's a very dubious feeling i wouldn't put a huge amount of um uh, you know of stock in that type of satisfaction i mean maybe it has its places i'm not sure i mean if it's something that's been building well anyway i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not really interested in justifying that particular path um anyway returning to grayling he 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 he, he drops it in this little tidbit at the end of his again it's a very brief piece but he drops this in at the end um because he's just talking about the he's talking about how anger has been around for so long and what anger has driven historically and he says he says this the first great poem in world literature is about anger and its terrible consequences homer's iliad begins the wrath of achilles is my theme the fatal wrath which fulfilling zeus's will brought the achaeans so much suffering and sent so many noble souls to hades leaving their bodies as carrion for vultures and dogs that's uh, that's nice stuff there from homer uh, grayling continues homer tells a vast morality tale stemming from the quarrel between achilles and Agamemnon over a division of spoils involving a girl called Briseis who was confiscated by Agamemnon from Achilles to the latter's implacable rage. Their feud weakens the Greek army which suffers repeated defeats. Achilles' own beloved friend Patroclus is killed by Hector whom Achilles kills in revenge and then cruelly drags round Troy's walls behind his chariot. For Homer's Greeks, therefore, as for those after them everywhere who are urgent for revenge, the words of Proverbs are apt. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. So there you go, that's A.C. Grayling, being very erudite and informative in his brief essay on anger. But the, the fundamental message is clear, I think, that the perpetuation of anger and the perpetuation of revenge and reprisal, it, is, it becomes a self-harming, self-consuming dynamic that is unending and dehumanizing i suppose unless you want to argue that that type of anger is very human um i don't know i mean that's you know when, when we use that word dehumanizing that presumably is arguing that to be human is to behave moderately to behave stoically to behave altruistically to behave compassionately to behave in the interests of 
peaceful cohabitation and to abandon all of those behaviors or to abandon all of those concepts and to live primarily on a on an atavistic program of brutal survival at all costs um I suppose that's the argument that, that that then that is dehumanizing, but who's to say? I mean, who's to say that that is what humans are? Um, I mean, there's a, there's there's an argument, I suppose, that you know, civilization is it's it's merely a quieting of the beast within the the animal that lurks in us all, because perhaps perhaps we are all capable of we're certainly all we're certainly all capable of bad behavior i don't think there's any question about that i mean the idea that any any one of us is a saint (laughs) or beyond reproach is absurd and delusional and narcissistic in the extreme um we're all capable of suboptimal behavior and we're all capable of selfishness um, and bad decision making um, and we're all capable of disregard for other people uh, I mean don't don't tell me that's not true <laughs> that is that is who we are humans are so profoundly flawed and imperfect and I mean, I, I think uh, a podcast like mine would there, there'd be no there'd be no space for it, um, if that wasn't the case. Um, you know, this is this is existence. This is life. This is the human experience. The human experience. It's it's messy, and um, that's why uh, if you read the the general about information of of the podcast, my first line is welcome to the turbulence. Um, because that is what it is. Uh, our our effort to to stabilize the ship is that's a lifetime's work, and it's an everyday mindful st- struggle to to try and attain a level of stability and calmness and centeredness and groundedness. Um, because life is just. I don't know. It's 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 uh, it's a whirlwind. It's a hurricane. It's a tornado. You're you're just in it, being fired around all over the place, and things are being fired at you, and you're trying to live a normal life within the chaos, within the flux, within the unending change, the unending unpredictability, um, and you can choose to focus on the 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 negative sort of perspective of that which is i have no control i don't know what's gonna happen next oh my god what am i gonna do that's a choice that's a choice that's a way of viewing reality you don't have to take that view you can strip it back strip it back down to small actions individual small decisions everything doesn't have to be fixed or stabilized or made perfect right now uh, but that's where it comes back to, you know, it comes back for me, it comes back to my faith in 
uh, health healthful practices and positive practices, uh, which I I refer, I, refer, I refer to last week and in previous episodes. Um, but yeah, in any case, um, I enjoyed I enjoyed reading that little synopsis of a, you know a key aspect of the Trojan War because it's it's a very dramatic it's a very dramatic part of the tale. Uh, Achilles and Agamemnon falling out over a beautiful woman and. Uh, Patroclus getting killed and Achilles being determined to avenge his death and taking on the the great warrior Hector and I was already familiar with that story not because I'm a great student of ancient Greek uh, legends myths history stories uh, although I, I, I have always liked them from a young age but because of Wolfgang Peterson's 2004 movie Troy which is um I don't know how good is it it's grand isn't it I mean it's you know it, it came I suppose it, it came a couple of years after after Gladiator so the the sand and sandals epic was back in fashion after the tremendous success of Ridley Scott's Gladiator uh Troy my yeah, I've only I've seen it a couple of times maybe, and my memory of it is it's a little bit it's a little little bit lacking in something, um, a little bit high on production values and maybe not so great at hitting you in the guts, but if you watch it even one time, you'll come away staggered by the uh, the fetishistic salivation over the extraordinary physical condition of the actors Brad Pitt and Eric Bana as Achilles and Hector respectively. Uh, lots of kind of golden light over the, the rippling muscles, the contours of their six packs and um, mountainous thighs. <laughs> um, I mean, it's very funny actually, the... Um, I remember reading an article about the production at the time um, prior to it coming out actually and Wolfgang Peterson the director was being interviewed and he basically said he started an arms race with uh, you know between Brad Pitt and Eric Bana I guess Pitt was in uh, in LA and Bana was back in Australia and you know he'd he'd speak to the guys and he'd be on the phone to Brad Pitt and he'd be like yeah, I just uh, I was just speaking to Eric, and he said he's just been doing some amazing things in the gym. He's in 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 absolutely phenomenal shape, best shape of his life. And then he got on to Eric and Phil, you know, Eric Banner's head with the same stuff, and going, yeah, Brad's killing it. He's got this amazing workout. He said uh, his body is just gonna pop on screen, um, and just basically had the guys just going at it off screen, trying to outdo each other. Um, this is what this is what directors do, you know, when they when they treat their actors as marionettes, they're to be manipulated. I'll pull this string and I'll do make them do this little dance. Uh, Troy, I think memorable also for some nice, colorful performances by uh, Brian Cox as Agamemnon and Brendan Gleeson. Who was he playing? He was very good, very very fiery, 
redhead. I can't remember the character's name though. And a very wrecked looking Peter O'Toole. Um, I can't remember the uh, was Julie Christie in it. Can't remember the, the the women. Anyway, there you go. That war star. You know, it was all about Helen, the beautiful Helen. But um, when it comes to telling the stories, let's focus on the the soldiers. The all that lovely homoerotic imagery. Those beautiful, lithe, muscular bodies. Anyway, there you go, Troy. Um, so anyway, listen. I, I was asking myself this idea about conflict and conflict resolution. And I felt that fundamentally it comes down to truth, to exposing or revealing or sharing truth and truth is dependent on honesty they're not the same thing are they so i wrote my thought i just wrote my thought down which is there can be no truth without honesty so honesty is the willingness to to share your experience, your actions, your thoughts. Um, and then that, that sharing of those elements becomes a form of truth. And truth then is, is what? It's a, a version of subjective reality is that a would that be a reasonable way to describe it um and i suppose it becomes less subjective if there's somebody else who can bear witness to the same events if not necessarily the same internal experience or reaction um and so honesty then is is a huge part of the challenge and i argue that there can be no honesty without courage because to be truly honest is to open oneself up it's it it's 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 certainly a close cousin of vulnerability so to be honest and say this is what i thought this is what i felt even if the repercussions could be very negative even if the repercussions could be very exposing in a negative way or in a way that could have very serious consequences for the person speaking um, that requires courage and courage then courage is not courage is not the absence of fear uh, some you know which some people may think you know to be brave or courageous um, it's not the absence of fear it's it's perseverance in in spite of fear it's perseverance in the presence of fear it's going ahead even though the fear is is huge even though the fear is very real it's not the quieting or the eradication of fear courage is proceeding anyway in spite of fear and that's where I, I think you know I, I think that's where growth can happen that's where real self-engagement 
can happen that is hopefully going to be uh, beneficial to the person who, who takes that chance. And I think when you put this into the context then of conflict, that's the, for me, that's the driver. Are you willing to be honest? Are you willing to face the fear of, uh, of the consequences of your honesty? And are you willing to accept what might be lost? Are you willing to accept the potential personal cost of being honest? Um, and that's, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. But I think that is, that is your, you know, that is one's kind of greatest asset uh, or greatest offering to bring to a conflict. And that's before you even, before you even think about what the other person is going to do, before you even think about what their reaction is going to be. Because if you start factoring in that, you start hedging and you start going, well, if they do this, then I'll give them that much information. And if they do that, I'll give them that much information. And so then it becomes very transactionary. But I think really the transaction should only be with yourself, that you're doing it for yourself. And that the, you know, be clear about the benefits to yourself in being honest. So you'll acquire a clarity and you'll acquire a clarity of, I mean, a clarity of conscience. I don't know. It depends, you know, what's at stake. But certainly you can say there was a clarity of communication. At least you can say there was no ambiguity about my position, my experience, my feelings, my thoughts. And that in itself can be a load off. Um, but you have to accept that you have no control over the other person's response. And that response might not be what you want. Um, and so there's that to, to, to think about. Also, you've got to engage with the idea of, of trust. Do you, you know, do you trust this other person in the conflict? Do you trust their motives? Do you trust their intentions? Do you trust their capacity to meet you with a reciprocal level of honesty, with a reciprocal level of transparency? And again, that's something you can't control. So the, the, the reality is you're, if you've only got control over your own your own intentions. You've only got control over the the amount of the amount that you want to share, the amount that you want to open up in yourself, how transparent you wish to be. And that may be all. That may be all you have. Um and I think beyond that, if we bring in these elements of anger. How much anger do you have? Are you willing to let go of your anger? If you don't get the response you want, if the other person is still very much in opposition to you, how are you going to negotiate that anger that hasn't been given permission to die? Well, again, I believe that's in your power. That's, you know, that's in, you know, if you're the person who's bringing the, 
bringing the the honesty to the table who's willing to kind of set aside your enmity um in a bid to achieve a reconciliation um the anger it's up to you know again like i think it has to be set aside you have to let go of yours uh regardless of what the other person is doing um and then that also brings in this is what i was thinking about was the ideas of contrition and forgiveness so in your in our kind of in our factoring of what this this uh, this engagement brings about do we go in and go i'm going to be honest i'm going to be transparent i'm going to let go of my anger and whatever i feel they've done to me whatever wrongs i feel i've experienced at their hands i'm going to forgive them and then you ask yourself but are they contrite are they showing sorrow for what they've done are they acknowledging culpability because they're not always present and so do you need to have contrition to to bestow forgiveness and i mean the whole forgiving thing is a funny one isn't it i mean if you go and read up a little bit about uh, Aristotle, Aristotle had a position whereby the whole idea of forgiveness was kind of beneath him. He was arguing, well, if you're pursuing the sort of the higher life and living on a higher moral plane, fundamentally, you know, no one, no one is in a position to forgive you because you're, you're, you're conducting yourself immaculately uh, or impeccably and you're beyond reproach. And conversely, other people, if they've transgressed, they're beneath you. So they don't even register. They're not even on. They're, they're so far below your plane of, of, <laughs> of human excellence, um, of ideological supremacy that forgiveness you, know, you wouldn't even you wouldn't even waste your breath forgiving them like it's like they're a lower life form um and i mean it's an extraordinarily arrogant position because the the modern thinking around forgiveness is more that we're all like like i uh, like i said earlier is that we're all flawed we're all capable of failing our better angels we're all capable of failing uh you know the moralities that we've been handed down we're all you know we're all capable of you know doing bad things and therefore you, you know it, forgiving someone is kind of acknowledging that you may equally be in need of forgiveness um but aristotle was like nah <laughs> <laughs> nah you're all right don't worry about it not interested um which i think is interesting because i think there can be you know there can be an implication of of superiority in in forgiveness uh in some cases um you know where you're like i forgive you and the other person is oh god that's very good of you thanks very much jesus thanks you're so kind how how grand of you to deign to forgive me you know am i good now am i a good person now that you've forgiven me so again 
I bring it back to look at what you hope to achieve by offering forgiveness. If if that is something, I mean, and to think is you know, if if you put it this way, if, you know, if forgiveness is in your gift, um, I don't know. I mean, why? Okay, what I think is forgiveness is beneficial to you because that is one of the facilitators of the release of anger, of the liberation of anger in the sense of letting it go, not of, in the sense of giving vent to it. Um, so I forgive this thing that you've done and I'm going to do that so I can think of you in a different light. And the challenge then going forward is can you live with that as a real thing? Can your forgiveness be unconditional? So there's no point going, I've made peace, but then secretly you've still got a knife stashed in your back pocket just in case. And that brings me, that brings me to the Northern Ireland situation. Um, I'm just going to take a sup of my medicinal drink here. Hold on a second, please. Delicious ginger, lemon, manuka honey, and a lemongrass and ginger tea bag in there. Fantastic. Um, so I was reading an academic paper by, um, let me see, I wrote it down. Where's he gone? Yeah, I was reading an academic paper by a guy called Duncan Morrow. And he was writing in a journal. The journal is called Peace Research. And that is the Canadian Journal of Peace and Conflict Studies. And he wrote an article in 2012 called The Rise and Fall, in brackets, of Reconciliation in Northern Ireland. And he really focused on the nature of the sectarian antagonism in Northern Ireland between Northern Irish Protestants and Northern Irish Catholics and was trying to articulate how it was all well and good for the Irish and British governments to want an end to the conflict, you know, in sort of international terms, in international accord terms. Um, uh, but the, the, the fact was that the, the actual combatants were far more enmeshed in a local ethnic cultural animosity um, and an ideological and traditional animosity that sort of, um, you know, raged furiously you know, beneath the high-minded ethical aspirations of the peace process, the peace and reconciliation process that was laid out for them. And the, the again, the author of the piece, he, he was citing, oh, he was citing someone else in the article, but he, he sort of summarized their thinking and talking about this type of antagonism and said, and I quote, the heart of antagonistic conflict is this self-perpetuating dynamic of conspiracy, discrimination, and terror in which everyone participates and no one feels responsible. 
and if you can't hear in that the impossibility of resolution this idea that everyone participates but no one is responsible and no one feels responsible i mean that is to be at loggerheads that is the fuel of tit-for-tat reprisals and that is the the fuel of sectarianism which fundamentally and again i'm paraphrasing from the article you know spoke about this perception of other uh in terms of being an ever-present threat uh of which you had to be ever vigilant and anything less than that was um seen as you know almost a form of collusion or surrender or defeat uh and brought with it the the stigma of of lesser identity of not being all that and in a in a in a in a conflict zone in a war zone that's all you had you just had that identity to 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 hang your your pride and your motivation on um and i'm not going to go into the the rights and wrongs of the troubles my sympathies would be very nationalistic and uh I suppose Republican to an extent, um, going back into the entire history of occupation and colonization in Ireland and the sort of mess that was segregation, the mess that was the the partitioning off of um of Northern Ireland in nineteen twenty. Um of enormous you know, enormous sympathy for the the, 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 the Catholic nationalist and catholic republican struggle in in the north which was fundamentally a sectarian state uh, that ran with the tacit approval of the british government um but you know just and that that really that led that that that, that blind eye led to the the the, you know, the rise of the troubles um and i mean i was just revisiting today some of the you know some of the many many incidents atrocities massacres uh, in the troubles um because one of them was one yeah one of them one of them wasn't cited the one i was thinking of wasn't cited in the article but there was a shankill road uh, explosion where the ira uh, had a bomb that went off was it a bomb or was it grenades oh i can't remember anyway a bomb, sorry, a bomb that went off prematurely, and so several uh, Protestant civilians were killed. And they were the bomb was originally intended to target Unionist paramilitary figures, um, and that was in October nineteen ninety three. But by the end of the month, the the I don't I can't remember if it was the UDA or the UVF, uh, one of the two um, Unionist paramilitary groups had set about their cycle of reprisals and one of the most kind of chilling was when they burst into a pub on the 30th of October 1993 um, and they burst into this pub which they said uh, was frequented by IRA officials and in fact that wasn't the case um, 
you know, it was, it was really it was just a purely sectarian hatred uh, atrocity. But they burst into the pub in kind of boiler suits and balaclavas and just opened fire on the people inside, um, but not before shouting "trick or treat," and then let rip. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely grim, grim, chilling, horrifying stuff. Um, and it, it does seem like if you go back and read the record, the Ulster paramilitaries seemed to be much more indiscriminate in their murders and executions and massacres. There were, of course, civilian deaths on the other side of the conflict. But largely speaking, I believe, uh, I mean, I may be wrong. I'm not I'm not a historian, but it seems that the IRA were more accurate in terms of uh, their targets being directly connected to, you know, to military activity. So, you know, legitimate targets, if you want to put it that way. And again, I'm not going to talk about the rights and wrongs or the ethics of who should and shouldn't be killed in in a conflict. Um, That's not really what this is about. But, you know, as I said, you know, as I've been saying all along, I've been interested in the the outcomes of of the the peace processes um, and the difficulty of achieving peace and certainly reading that article which as i say was from 2012 so it's nine years old um ultimately it painted quite a bleak picture for the process um for the prospects sorry for the prospects of of true sort of peace of true uh, a true sense of kind of a rebuilt community and harmonious cohabitation in in the north between the the two communities. Um, it, it's definitely nine years on. It, it definitely seems to be still quite fractious at a fundamental level. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I I live in hope. I live in hope uh, for for a resolution that no longer requires any kind of um you know paramilitary activity any sort of ongoing conflict the um the south african truth and reconciliation report is very interesting um and i didn't read the entire thing i I skipped to the end of the report which focused on reconciliation and gave several accounts several first-hand accounts of of testimony of people who had been involved in the apartheid regime the anz civilian civilians who'd had family members killed tortured executed victims of state oppression inter you know torturous um interrogation uh a white south african woman who was the victim of a bomb attack in her sort of church group and yeah it was fascinating it was fascinating to read the various accounts and what seemed to be consistent was people's relief that things could be spoken about so on a purely on a purely sort of personally therapeutic level on a personally cathartic level that seemed to be consistent that you know regardless of the different incidents being recounted some of which were 
again, absolutely horrific um, descriptions of torture, descriptions of, you know, of, of retribution, killings, um, really, yeah, really, really horrible stuff. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I read it, and I'm not. I'm not surprised, but there's something. There is something chilling, and disturbing, when when you're reminded of what. I don't know when you're reminded of what people are capable of, when you're reminded of what hatred can do, when you're reminded of what racism can do and you know sectarianism in its way you know it's a form of 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 racism really um that 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 othering um of which we're all guilty in different ways i believe um but like taken in extremists in a conflict situation um and at this this the these cycles of yeah, again, to, to use the phrase earlier, from earlier, revenge, reprisal, reciprocal antagonism, um, the distrust, the, you know, the vilification of other and the, I suppose that, to use de- the word dehumanizing in terms of, to dehumanize another person, to to render them less than human as a justification for taking their life um without you know while possibly failing to recognize the dehuman the, the, the dehumanizing aspect on oneself that is that kind of that blindness that anger blindness that duncan morrow described uh, in the paper uh, everyone participates and no one feels responsible um so in that regard there's a i don't know there's a there's a tunnel vision to it all but but in any case the the truth and reconciliation uh findings hearings the truth and reconciliation report it, yeah, like it's a fascinating document to I, you know, and I dipped into it. I mean, I, I don't know how much I read, 15 or 20 pages of that section of the report. Um, but it is, it, it, like it's, it's amazing to, to hear those accounts, to read those accounts, to look at the dates referred to, to realize how long the conflict went on for, and to think about what South Africa had to do to emerge from that. Um, and look, now to 2021 i don't i don't have a strong sense of the state of south africa um there certainly seems to have been like political scandals but i'm not sure where it's at i certainly enjoyed seeing them win the rugby world cup a couple of years ago um and you know having a passing familiarity with the the story of the the black south african captain who'd come from pretty hard circumstances and was lifting the Ellis Webb Trophy aloft in triumph at the end of that tournament a couple of years ago. I mean, that was a, definitely a good news story. Um, and certainly that's been something that's been used to indicate or symbolise uh, a unified South Africa. Um, 
in the popular imagination I, I i don't know i have no sense of what of what the reality is but certainly to look at the truth and reconciliation report at that document as a as a as a historical artifact it's it's heartening and it's saddening as well like it's deeply saddening to read those accounts of of human depravity i suppose um and barbarity on on both sides and just the the legacy of of hurt the legacy of grief and the legacy of shame i suppose um for those who perpetrated those acts and then you have to talk about forgiveness of self and really if we bring it back to the the personal and the individual and not talk about international conflicts i think that's a key aspect of ongoing wellness because i sometimes no not sometimes i mean i i have the belief that when we view ourselves when we view our own lives and when we view our own trauma our own pain we can often cast ourselves as complicit that somehow we contributed to our own failure that we contributed to our own fail our own failings our own trauma our own pain and our own inability to to be better to be stronger to be more functional to be more whatever to be more successful to be more at peace with our past to be more at peace with what dogs us and that that sort of self-talk of complicity i you know there, there's room there's room for a certain amount of that if, if that's part of being honest and if that's part of, of true honest self-engagement where you go mm, actually i did contribute to that but often i think it's just not the case and i think it's very important to engage with the idea then of self-forgiveness and to sort of um, exonerate oneself from culpability and that is a very kind act to oneself and i think it is to be to be recommended um you know if it's if it's part of a, a, a if it's part of your own truth and reconciliation process so there you go i think that's a good note on which to leave it um I wasn't sure where I was going to go with this. Listen, I'll finish. <laughs> I'll finish with something, actually. Uh, speaking of conflict, it's very funny. I've been on a bit of a Alfred Hitchcock binge recently. And last night I was watching 1940s Foreign Correspondent with um, Joel McRae, a beautiful Lorraine Day, um, and George Sanders, who you might know most uh, famously from uh, all about Eve, that incredibly bitchy theatre world movie with Betty Davis um, and George Sanders is also in that as Addison DeWitt. Anyway, I was watching Foreign Correspondent, which ends with an extraordinary uh, sequence, which involves a a plane, which the the heroes and villains are travelling upon, um, being shot down. Uh, at the outbreak of war and there's this extraordinary sequence of the plane crash and you get the pilot's view of the uh, impending impact and you're kind of going oh right so this was really an action movie back in the day this would be the equivalent of 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 a jason bourne movie or an avengers movie nowadays um 
so apart from the you know the limitation of the the special effects it was quite extraordinary because this was a plane it's a smallish plane but it might have been i don't know 40 or 50 passengers on it and they crash into the sea and the main characters survive um the 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 villain sacrifices himself so they may survive but otherwise it's like there's seven survivors so are you know three or four main protagonists uh, an elderly woman and the pilot and it's so funny because it comes very close to the end of the movie <laughs> and i was just thinking in, in terms of conflict they the characters like emerge from this crash and they're doing their sort of you know their debrief afterwards and the sort of the levity and jollity with which they're engaging was striking to me no evidence whatsoever that they've just been through a traumatic experience no not a word not a word about you know the 43 other passengers who drowned or were devoured by sharks or whatever it's just la 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 haven't we done well hip hip absolutely hilarious so um no conflict no conflict with their survivor with their survival so no no uh, no survivor's guilt um but there you go it, it's just a movie it's just a movie lads it's okay anyway that's it okay listen uh, i'm done thank you very much for listening and spending some time with me uh do go to the description if you want to see the social media links for twitter for facebook for instagram and yes, if you like what you're hearing, do please spread the word. Do please give me a plug on whatever platform, even if that platform is just you having a cup of tea with a friend and going, do you know what? I listened to a good podcast the other day. I think you might like it. That would be wonderful. And if you feel like throwing some financial love my way, you can do so using the supporter link, also found in the description, and the Patreon link. Okay. So that's your options. Okay, you mind yourselves now. All the best. Take care. I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.